They said it was forbidden. They said it was dangerous. They were right. Introducing the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual. Dive into the arcane, into the hidden corners of the occult. This isn't just a comic. It's a hidden tome of supernatural power. All original artwork illustrating the groundbreaking research of Juan Ayala, one of the only living homunculologists of our time. Learn how to summon your own homunculus, an enigma wrapped in the fabric of reality itself, their power at your fingertips, their existence, your secret. Explore the mysteries of the Aristotelian, the spiritual, the Paracelsian, the Crowleyan homunculus, ancient knowledge lost to time, now unearthed in this forbidden tale. This comic book holds truths not meant for the light of day, knowledge that was buried, feared, and shunned. Are you ready to uncover the hidden, the paranoid American homunculus owner's manual, not for the faint of heart, available now from Paranoid American. Get your copy at tjojp.com or paranoidamerican.com today. Yo, what is up? Wow. In the last month, the last few weeks, gotten one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine new patrons. Thank you so much. Shout out to Jen Grant, Jason, Daryl Jens, Edgar Moreno, Philosophical Minds Podcast. Check them out, Sky. Elijah N. Juan Velasquez. Welcome to the Juan on Juan Podcast. Joy Ryder. Shout out to Joey. He's a real OG. And shout out to Peter Shell. Peter Shell is another OG. Thank you so much for the generous donations, tips, and thank you for signing up for the Patreon. Patrons get exclusive content, early access, stickers, perks, direct access to me if you want to send me a message, talk to me, whatever. And thank you to all those who have bought a comic book or a Cultus Mundi. Really appreciate it. It's because of you guys that it helps. It really helps with the show because, I mean, we do have it. Like I said before, we do have expenses. And as much as I love doing it for free, which, I mean, I'm still going to continue to do it regardless. But every little bit helps to keep the lights on and keep this operation going. So thank you so much, everyone who signed up for the Patreon. And make sure to check it out, patreon.com slash the one-on-one podcast. You can find the rest of the stuff on my Ko-Fi or on my website, YouTube, one-on-one podcast. Love you guys. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy the show.
architecture emerges from and is inherently integrated in society's belief and search for understanding. And in this search, principles related to magic have played a significant role. Magic from early history has been essential in the process of architecture, as most technology. If magic is an attempt to control nature and engage the divine, then the objects such as the architecture itself that has been, been acted upon is enchanted. So the concept of enchantment is the state of being under a spell. Magic with a great delight or charm and can clarify how architects can be a form of magician. I uh, would like to propose that many of the architects that have, have lasting reputations have continued engaging concepts related to magic in their design. Consequently, if principles of re-enchantment uh, remain relevant to architecture, and I think it does. And that's why I'm excited by this podcast and what you're doing, which is, I think, hitting a, a pretty important trend early. That it is critical to remind contemporary architects how they may use concepts of magic in order to enchant their buildings. Welcome to the One on One Podcast with your host, Juan Ayala. Welcome back to another episode of the Juan Juan Podcast. I'm your host as always, and today as a co-host joining me is everybody's homie, homie Romy, homie Romy, Roman Hello. from Rising from the Ashes Podcast. And I've been very excited for this episode because I just finished the book and it blew me away. I couldn't put it down. The architect as magician. And yes, we're going to go there. And today we have Dr. Albert C. Smith with us. What's going on, Albert? How are you doing today? Good. I'm really happy to um, come on this podcast. I think you're hitting some very interesting things here. And of course, it's a subject area that uh, I've gotten fascinated along with a lot of other ones. But uh, um, so I'm really looking forward to our talk absolutely and uh for those this is your first time ever on a podcast is that correct <laughs> well i've been teaching online since of covid for the last year and a half and they're all sort of like big podcasts so we'll <laughs> see if this goes the same way awesome and like i said i couldn't put the book down for those i want to check it out the architect as magician and i know you co-wrote this with your with your wife that has unfortunately passed away and you have a lot of interesting things and my condolences, by the way, and you have a lot of interesting things in here that I, I don't know how the, the community uh, reviewed this. Cause I haven't looked at the reviews, but did you get any pushback or anything at all when it comes to this? Cause you, you define magic and architecture and pretty much the, as the title states, the architect as magician uh, where the process of building a building is a magical process. Uh, did you get any, did you get any pushback when you were talking about this sort of stuff? Like how, what was that like? I'm not getting pushback academically. In fact, I think it's going over rather well. When you write an academic book, you don't make, you're not going for the money. You're going for, you know, the publication. It's a good publisher and I'm very happy with them. 
my advisor used to say you'd make enough money off your book to get a good dinner. <laughs> it always seems that precious information really goes overlooked at times. And it's how people have told me before, oh, what does it matter? What do you, what do you mean, what does it matter? How you were talking about the Renaissance. This is at, our, at the core of everything that we know today to be how it is. And what what got you into this sort of topic? Because I know you are an architect. What got you writing about this in specific? And what got you into the, the field as a whole? I'm very interested in uh, communications. I got into education a few years ago and decided that one of the things I wanted to do was go on for my advanced degree PhD. I uh, did it in representation, which is an area about how we communicate, what buildings mean. And so uh, this is a subject that, you know, you sort of channel into fairly quickly if you're moving in that area. And the representation of what buildings mean, right? Because right. a lot of people, they, we live in these homes, we, we coexist with architecture, and, but it, there's always this missing link. And the one that I can think of that an example that people are going to be familiar with is the pyramids of Giza, right? The Egyptians, how were they able to build something, but not only how were they able to build it, but why they built such a thing for what was the purpose? You know what I mean? Do you have any ideas of what they were built for or could have been built for? Well, why don't I start off with a little bit of, the broad base of what this is about. Then we can go directly into that. I think that humans create architecture as a means to control nature. Certainly the Egyptians did that. Mm. And once a building could keep the rain off and the wolves out, architecture evolved as its creators became interested in keeping the ghosts at bay and establishing a connection to the heavens. I believe to clearly define and represent the heavens. I believe that to do this and represent the ghosts and other unknown things affect on how we as humans inhabit this world. It remains a large part of our search for meaning. Few would disagree that an architect is a critical, critical element that which uh, we engage in represent this search. Historically, architecture has been used to represent mankind's place in the cosmos, and uh, architects use various means to engage this search through the building process, from the scientific all the way to the religious. Yet other areas of thought have uh, affected the design process. And um, for example, the search for meaning in architecture can also point to past relationship between the uh, conception of architecture and its means of production. Uh, the process of architectural design is analogous to the traditional concepts, uh, and we can take that process uh, and connect it to magic. Now, the um, pyramids, I think maybe we go back to Sakura's pyramids, which are actually earlier, um, designed by Inhotep. Um, Inhotep is the first named architect we know. Uh, very interesting guy. Inhotep uh, mm -hmm. was a uh, um, head scribe for 
pharaoh, um, an educated guy. He was a uh, physician. He was uh, um, said to be the right, uh, inventor of hieroglyphics, writing. He was his architect and designed those first uh, pyramids. And he's also a magician. Uh, a lot of people don't realize that. And then I think they're all interconnected. What, if you look at the Egyptian um, philosophy of the world, everything was magical. And um, so the afterlife became incredibly important. So for the Pharaoh, uh, building the pyramids became an, not only a, a sort of a, a philosophical thing to sort of explain and uh, prepare for the afterlife. Some people think they were make work projects when the um, Nile rose and nobody had any work. So people could come and um, work on the pyramids and get paid by the Pharaoh and live. They're fascinating places, of course. Pharaoh was buried with all sorts of little effigies. Um, you find architectural models in mm. tombs. You see models of bakeries, breweries, cattle shops, et cetera. And you go, why? And the idea was that Pharaoh in the afterlife, of course, being a magical sort of guy, could clap his hands together and those would become real. Um, in a way, the, our use of architectural models are still like that. Um, they're still involved with a certain amount of magic. Um, you know, uh, I know that the slaves of Pharaoh must have been very happy because uh, they must have done a lot of talking to Pharaoh. Wouldn't it be better to be buried with little tiny effigies of slaves, little clay ones, and they would put them in giant pots. And so in the afterlife, Pharaoh would clap his hands and say, slaves do this, slaves do that. Much better than burying them all with the uh, Pharaoh, which I didn't think probably ended up as a very popular idea. Symbolically, <laughs> the building really starts to explain, um, you know, what the afterlife was. If you look at the pyramid, it goes up into infinity. Uh, so I was really talking about infinity. To the monad, right? You can say that the tip is the monad? Yeah, well, it's also, um, they started off as a uh, sakura in layers, like the ziggurats. They mm -hmm. were sort of borrowing from each other. They were always taking it. And, and then I think as, as you go to Giza, it all starts into that smooth, perfect form. Uh, they got better at it. It's an imitation of a mountain, though, because mountains were associated with higher powers and the they gods. They were magic mountains. Also, if you look at ziggurats, they were sort of uh, uh, moving away from the earth to the heavens yeah it's like the tower of babel type of story where they're trying to construct something in order to get to the gods and if you look at how high they were 13 acres because i'm planning a trip to to egypt here come early next year and it's 13 acres that the the, the the great pyramid takes up which is huge and this idea that you're talking about where the egyptians took everything very literally and and uh, Imhotep being the one that invented hieroglyphics, well, hieroglyphics were just that. It was an interpretation of 
a, a real world to them. If they were to draw a a donkey with two bags, you know, the donkey in real life had to have the two bags. They couldn't overburden him in this uh, Plato's world of forms, right? That's where, the, you know, essentially uh, they paved the way for Neoplatonic thought, which Marsilio Ficino is one of my favorites when it comes to this whole topic. But this idea of burying little models, and I know your expertise is actually models, modeling. Well, it's one of them, yeah. Well, well one of them. <laughs> but, one of the many. Yeah, one of the many. This idea of burying the pharaoh with little effigies and little models, I think of the terracotta soldiers uh, when the it was a, a micro of the macro, uh, this this the the the, fair, the king or the emperor wanted to build a little micro kingdom of the kingdom he was going to have in the celestial upper eons i guess you could call it that's what they were all about and they were and each one of those little soldiers terracotta soldiers is different that's mm-hmm. scary each one is modeled after <laughs> A real person who well, I'm sure was quite happy they weren't being buried themselves. Well, I have I have an idea with that, Doctor Smith, where I because the the Hans Purple it escapes this reality when it's taken to a certain temperature, and I think that they were able to somehow alchemically infuse their soul into this terracotta soldier, and they would be there in there for eternity because the color Hans Purple is they cannot reproduce it. With technology, it is not producible again. And scientists have tried to crack the code and they haven't been able to. But when you take it to a certain temperature, it escapes mm-hmm. this dimension quite literally. It escapes mm-hmm. the visible light spectrum. So who knows what they were up to? Because I know you talk about alchemy a little bit in the book, but we know that they were up to some some next level magical ideas, I guess you could call it. I don't I don't know how else to put it. Well, you've you, you hit on an interesting point with the pictogram, the writing. And um, as he invites writing, he's really making a representation of the world. And you're exactly right. You know, the Chinese did this too, you know, a reputation of a tree or a human or whatever looks like a human. And it was, he had the stylus. And you usually see the stylus. And I, th- I, I would argue that that uh, stylus is the same thing that he designs with. Design actually means to make a mark, if you look at the etymology of the word. And if you look at the um, that pencil, it's almost like a magic wand. Mm, yeah, because I that's like that. You yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's fascinating. You And you get that again and again, you know, gosh, kid, you're, you draw so well, you're almost magically talented. And people bring that up again and again. I, I like the story that you bring up in the first chapter of speaking of having otherworldly powers. That's how these individuals were looked at in uh, ancient times where they were able to it's it's theurgy, right? It's able to magia uh, naturalis, where they're able to uh, in, uh, manipulate nature to their will. So they were looked at as as magicians, these architects. And I like the story that you talk about in the book of the cave paintings, where the right. community not after the the architecture uh, becomes a home and it provides you with security and all these things, and you build a community around that the magician, the architect as well, would uh, draw these almost 
these pictures, but they would serve as talismans. Did I get that card where they would where they would want to evoke either it was a buff a buffalo, it would evoke a buffalo, or did I get that right? Well, it could be an icon, but yeah, they would try and uh, make images, and they would have image magic from that. Uh, the idea that you know, and you see this in cave painting after cave painting. Maybe you're living in a place where the herds have gone away, so they wanted to make images of it in hopes that the herds would come back. Now, the interesting thing about such people and that the way they control people is they could see, they could understand nature, and they were usually some of the more educated people. And Hoptep was basically a Renaissance person. He's uh, a good model for later. Some people argue that uh, um, Hoptep was Joseph from the Bible. And certainly they wanted to get up close to the powers to be, um, and Pharaoh was it. Pharaoh had the money and Pharaoh had the ability to build. And so um, getting close and being able to advise thoughtfully, uh, being an educated person, uh, you could start to deal with all those issues of controlling nature. Um, can I ask you... Created the irrigation system too in Egypt. But go ahead. I was going to ask you about uh, mnemonics. Uh, mnemonics built into, like, the, uh, used as in the way to harness memory and maybe even celestial men- memory, uh, and how they how the architecture may have been used in uh, sacred geometry to be used as a monomic device and that, that that word is hard because it has that extra m in the beginning so it's hard for, it's m n e m o n i c i think you're talking about yeah memory as a whole and memory is very important in fact if you look at uh, monuments uh the roots of the word monument comes from memory we're trying to create memory of a, an event a person you know an idea um to you know, present it. So um, yeah, it's an incredibly important part of architecture. Actually, I was uh, critting a student today and we ended up talking about memory quite a bit because he's working on Alzheimer's and how do you create spaces for people that are losing their memory? It's fascinating. Wow, wow. Yeah. yeah. So true. How do you, how do you honestly? Uh, I'm curious, what, what is, if you can share what he's working on or how, what would, what's your recommendation? Oh, I think yeah, he has to sort of take the bodily senses and enhance them. And, uh, you know, what are some of the most powerful things that are part of our memories, such as smell, for example, for a person, you know, and so you can identify where you are and how you live. The, the way I came across this, this information, actually, it was while doing research for an episode that I was doing with Romy. Roman on his show and I was it was about mirrored realities about mirrors and magic and I came across an article that by a Japanese gentleman Taikuchi Dai and I don't know if you've ever heard of him but he writes a lot about magic and and the occult and he had this thing about the Mundus Imaginalis and John D and Edward Kelly on how it, again femina uh, phenomenology and i and i always get it wrong but this idea that that it, that what you experience is true to you so how you're saying how do you lay out a, a building or a room or something in order to 
cater to somebody who's having uh, issues with their memory? What phenomenon can you trigger within them that'll that'll be able to connect those missing, I don't know what, neurons or something in their brain to be able to remember how you're saying Vitruvius talked about the different spaces and that they evoke different feelings because architecture, and I think a lot of people are missing this this concept that it's meant to invoke a feeling within you. Mm -hmm. It's not just there for you. We take it for advantage. We take advantage of it, right? Where, where we're just going in and we don't realize that the way that light comes into a building. Yeah. It's it's just a shelter. I just live here. It looks nice, whatever. I cut the grass every weekend, et cetera, et cetera. But they forget that at the core roots of architecture, it is magical. It's meant to invoke a certain type of feeling with the layout and this room is meant for this. This other room is meant for that. And Vitruvius, if you mix them, you get some sort of weird result. What What are your thoughts on that? Of of that architecture is meant to invoke a feeling and an experience. You're you're meant to experience these buildings. Well, I think it's uh, um, centered to what we do. And and one of the reasons we got off of that, we disenchanted ourselves by um, sort of removing the magical side. And this was sort of a modernist uh, uh, way of we looked at it, technological, scientific. So people said, you know, my goodness, uh, we really can't be talking about magic uh, when we're (laughs) doing science. Though uh, people like um, the roots of science that are coming from magic. In fact, most of the professions uh, have a a very strong link to magic. So it's just not architecture. I think you can look at, you know, law and medicine, et cetera. But by removing that section of almost the, the spiritual, the soul from the equation, we start getting soulless buildings and there's, there's can be a problem. Would you consider brutalist architecture to be a part of that that compartment? You know, it gets a little interesting because the smart architects never really sort of cut it all out, like um, La Corbusier. He was always very interested in magic and uh, alchemy in this building. Mm-hmm. In fact, La Corbusier uh, was uh, named Pierre Generet, and he took the name of the crow because it was a magical being. I don't know if you know that. And he, he did what? I'm sorry, Albert. Can you repeat that again? Well, La Corbusier, and was certainly one of the more famous architects of the 20th century, but he was a, a, a Swiss architect. And that's not his name. He took it as a uh, nickname. And it's the means the crow, and he took it because it's the crow was a magical being, mm-hmm. and and uh, alchemical as well, part of the alchemical processes of putrefaction. Well, he he, it's an interesting guy. I mean, he had been off in Russia. He'd certainly been working and knew the constructivists. The constructivists were into a, a interesting period where they couldn't really go back to the church. And the spiritual side of the Russian constructivists, kind of the Russian, <laughs> uh, had to, they couldn't talk about it because the communists were ticked off of the church. So uh, they started to bring it new and different ways. Yeah, you can take a look at uh, um, 
you know, all the forms of the hat of a nun and, you know, the way the light goes through. He's, he's, he's using every trick in the book. So he, he uh, um, certainly um, uh, knew what the uh, constructivists were doing and they were replacing the church with uh, alchemical symbols, et cetera. Yeah, and, and how Falconelli says that cathedrals were alchemical texts and pictures in order to inform, right? Kind of. Yeah, like a hieroglyphs, and only the initiated would understand what they were looking at because it, it goes back to that. And the, the book that really set it off for me that piqued my interest and made me reach out to you was the book Pythagorean Palaces by Hersey. And I was reading that and when I just this idea of, of Pythagor, Pythagoras, because I'm very intrigued by Pythagoras, the idea that they're able to elevate, right? Because that's why there's elevations in architecture to elevate this, the state of consciousness within these buildings, right? Marsilio talked about, Ficino talked about it, uh, was I love anything really interdimensional. So the idea of getting another dimension within a, a physical shell, uh, that just blew my mind where the, the, they were thinking about if you adhere to these principles and you follow these, this formula, this magic, you're going to make something within this building that is above this level of consciousness. That blew my mind. Well, one thing it develops is, you know, a cathedral, for example, certainly takes ritual um, how you enter the church, how you go down yeah. the aisle, um, how the, the you know the mass proceeds, et cetera, et cetera. These are the same things that really are, are part of magic, which is a part of a ritual. Now, cathedrals are certainly built for an illiterate population to try and explain the liturgy of the church. But there are <laughs> all sorts of little uh, side trips on there, you know, stained glass windows and. Uh, we're telling stories, the statues are telling stories, everything in that building. So a monk could come by and just grab some illiterate population and, and just talk about this. Mm -hmm. If you go to Shark Cathedral, I remember there used to be a, a historian from um, England and we'd go there every summer and spend his summers there and just give lectures off one of the windows. So, you know, 10 o'clock, everybody gets together, everybody gives him a couple of bucks. And he lectures about this one window. Is, and just the <laughs> images are explaining the entire thing. And then you come back an hour, he'll talk about another, and then another, and another. And, you know, you could just keep paying this guy for weeks, and he's talking about <laughs> it. Funny enough, the last time I was in a, uh, a cathedral was in San Francisco, and, you know, I was pretty into architecture at this point, so I was really excited to see it i i was kind of let down as you know it's when you when you look at like the real gothic cathedrals and the cathedrals of um of true antiquity compared to the cathedrals that are thrown up uh as like mock-ups here in america you're kind of let down you know it's it's not a spectacular but when we were uh we did set in for a session and they were doing just that. The church was going through each window. They had all the lights off. 
and they would highlight just this one window and he would tell a story and there would be music behind it and it was incredibly theatrical and then they would move to each window and and just have that story go through and i was like man i just popped in on the right sunday or do they do this every sunday uh is this you know you know, even the original cathedrals were like big shows. They, you know, would have huge uh, um, incense going through. One of the things I found was they would um, have wires up at the top, and um, they would get automata that would fly down the wires, and uh, uh, you know, like an angel with its wings flapping. I did not know that. Well, the best ones uh, they had. A, uh, there's a famous one of the, the devil would slide down. Oh, you know, scaring the hell out of the entire uh, congregation. I'm sure to get a little more money out of them, but um, <laughs> it must have been quite a show going on in these places. Oh, yeah. And that night is when all the alchemists would come in because a lot of the cathedrals underneath would have um, would would surely would surely have tombs underneath for uh, for old ISIS worship. Oh, there's and the double fed. Yep. Oh, whoa. There you go. Yeah, I had yeah, big in the big in the puppetry the in the past. Yeah, I had no idea about this until I read your book that they had how the the story of John D and the Beetle for the play that he would do. Uh, obviously, that was the fifteen hundreds. I don't know what year this would be. Yeah, yeah sixty. He was yeah. the um, um, advisor to um, Queen Elizabeth. Yes. And he he would uh, allegedly he made an, uh, an automata of a huge scarab beetle for some play I think it was Zeus or something where it would descend up the stage and they associate him with 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 being a sorcerer because people didn't understand this automata it was they couldn't understand like wait a minute this is a machine this is this is something that you made like you know you got to be in bed with the devil if you're being able to come up with stuff like this so imagine somebody <laughs> seeing this creepy ass thing look at that thing bro <laughs> well, you, you know the uh the prog astronomical clock that has a lot of mystor- uh mysterious lore behind it they have a whole uh puppet show in there too like that like goes i think every time the, the clock dings off or something and just thinking about being at these living in these living in the past like this when things would just animate out of buildings you know we don't we don't do that anymore at all uh you know even the the tv it's like okay cool it's an image on a screen and that's it's fine and dandy but it's not a puppet popping out of a building well you know it's fascinating um that people are are starting to get into ai right now and in a way it's the same thing it's trying to create life um and uh so they were fascinating with this back then uh leonardo da vinci is said to have made an mm-hmm. automatic lion um and there's always a story of descartes um, too with his francine yeah francine i didn't know that about I, I studied descartes i didn't even know about that that he made a replica of this little girl who was the the, the daughter of a servant right that, did i get that right that's right yeah i didn't know about that until i started reading into this i'm like holy crap and then the idea of essentially how you're saying they're tr- it all goes back to man trying to mimic a divinity trying to become a god trying to become a demiurge as facino puts it where these architects are the demiurges and these buildings are their homunculus essentially because i love the way that they put in pythagorean palaces where this idea of having 
ideas transcend different levels of reality. So when an architect thinks of it, that's the fetus in his mind. And when he brings it forth, it's the baby, the model, the drawing, right? Verbal expression. It's the baby. And the actual... Filaretti writes about that. Yeah. Uh, who else? Filaretti. Filaretti. Uh, the, the Renaissance of the period. He talks mm. about giving birth to your idea. Yes. So I think this is a fairly common idea. Um, Francine, of course, uh, talks about that sort of being able to create life without soul. Francine didn't have one. Um, and the story goes that he, he made this uh, little automata of the girl that, you know, of his servant that, you know, she was obviously charming. She died of scarlet fever. And uh, he really loved her, uh, um, you know, as a child. And so he had a model of her, uh, an automata for her in his trunk and the captain of a ship when they were on the sea voyage found her. Wow. <laughs> the crew was so freaked out about this, you know. This is black magic to these guys. Yeah. Um, it's one step away from a homunculus. So he, he takes it out and throws it overboard. It's the original story of Pinocchio, except Pinocchio yeah. was magically enchanted, I guess. I don't know how else to okay. put it. Mm -hmm. so, these are archetypical stories that kept reoccurring. And what what the story that really stood out to me as well, I'm going to look up here. Uh, I, I sent a message to a friend of mine, shout out to Slick Dissident, Gabriel, because it really blew my mind where the Daidala, because you get into the idea of these buildings being machines. They're, they're actual machines and they're, they're programmed for a certain function and they become they're passive thinking machines. Passive. The Daidala? Di so Daidala comes from Daidala. is D-A-I-D-A. LA. And what stood out to me was this idea of enchanting this Daidala. So jewels or with, you know, with charisma and making it a talisman. And the, 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 the quote that you put in that it's Alberto Perez Gomez, uh, when he writes about the labyrinth and the, and Daidalas, Daidala or art objects can appear to be what they are not. And the metal plates give a value to the objects that they would not otherwise have. The principal value of Daidala is that of an, enabling the ina inanimate matter to become magically alive, of reproducing life rather than representing it. Hence, the word also designates Thaumata, marvelous animated machines with the brilliant suits of armor and Skin, scintillating eyes. eyes, and that made me think of Transformers. Well, <laughs> it's a transformer. Exactly. <laughs> well, exactly. You know, it's funny that you, you're talking about it because Kurt uh, Gomez is writing about Daedalus, um, the prototypical Greek architect in mythology, creates the myth, uh, the labyrinth. You know, control the um, Minotaur. He uh, is supposed to divide uh, design the divider. He is. Uh, um, he was said to have been able to make statues so lifelike they had to chain them down at night so they wouldn't walk away. Which is fascinating, but it's the exact same game as the um, automata, the transformers you're talking about. AI is about that. 
you know, and you endlessly mm-hmm. get the same sort of theme in robot movies, etc. Um, and these are just one again. What Frankenstein's story? The story of Frankenstein is all about this. It's the fact that can human makes uh, um, reproduce ourselves, but do we really have the ability to create a soul within that human? And the soul is what deals with the spiritual and the magical. It's a good question. Um, whether or not we can uh, is, I think, a matter of time. Inevitably, I think it is one of the one of the big goals of some areas of science. And un- undoubtedly, I, I I think it's inevitable uh, at some point uh, to be able to maybe contort information and, and funnel it into such a thing. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I see so much of this, you know, you can lift a rock and find millions of, of life forms there underneath. And, mm-hmm. you know, what consciousness is seems to maybe be connected to magnetism and, you know, the planets and I don't know know nothing of, of the sort it's uh, also deep and speculative really when you when even science it's at points in the, the heavy heavy neuroscience you know is it's it, some speculations at some point uh, about consciousness because we really just don't know you know but we sure would love to inoculate a homunculus with consciousness the the, the arnaldian homunculus there was this guy that uh i think uh Tostalo talks about the 15th century theologian and he talks about how he would alchemically make a homunculus so this little magical man and right as it was being born right as it was coming alive the uh arnaldo de villa i forget his name i think that's it he would smash it and kill it because he's like wait you know god died for everybody's sins but i don't know if he died for that homunculus's sin because I just made that. I, I I made that me. So is God gonna die for? Did did he die for that sin of that thing? So he would kill it before it would have a soul, quote unquote, before it would be possessed by a soul. And this is one of the first concepts, even before Paracelsus talked about the homunculus in the 16th century. The Arnaldian homunculi, homunculus was one of the first ones, one of the first stories. So he would make it, and as soon as he made it, he would smash it because he was afraid of. What it, you know, the the ethical questions of it. What did I did I just make another soul? Does it have a soul? Will it be possessed by a soul afterwards? It's a very interesting concept. Mm. Well, this is always a position, and the architects and the designers and the artists who are who are many times, uh, particularly during the Renaissance, were the same. They they were always playing in this area, and they used to call them the divino artista, uh, the divine artist. Uh, because they're really dealing with that sort of issue. Have you heard of Kobo Daishi? Yeah. There's a story how you're talking about Idolis where he would make these these automaton, they would these creations, and they would run out of the lab. Well, Kobo Daishi, there's a story revolving around him where he was carving out these dragons that were outside this temple. And they were carved out so lifelike, and he was painting them almost so lifelike that when he put the last drop of paint on it, 
it was so well done that the dragons came to life, right? The dragons became, it came to life and he freaked out. He was like, oh, this is a, this is perfection. I can't have this happen. So he takes another uh, color <laughs> and he throws it on there and the dragon goes back to just being a wooden dragon, a sculpture. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a, you know, that, that humans are not perfect has been a reoccurring theme. You find a, uh, uh, when you're making a carpet, you know, they'll put a flaw in there to say, you know, this is human. Or if you're making a, 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 um, a beautiful Japanese pot, they'll put a little mistake in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For those reasons. And this idea of, you mentioned temples earlier, where I'm, I was born and raised Pentecostal Christian, so I'm used to seeing people run around and do all this funny stuff and, and speak in tongues and, and go crazy at the at church, at a temple, right? Where we're with the congregation. And where were you raised? Where was I raised? Yeah. I'm in I was born in Puerto Rico, raised in Florida. Oh, okay. Yeah. I taught in Texas. There are a lot of Pentecostals. So Yeah, yeah. Well, projects like this and they, you know, you, you did up talking to them. Yeah. They, like, they, they speak in tongues and they just take everything super literal. So the idea of conducting ritual at a temple where the temple becomes this place for, for the gods to inhabit. I like, I, I believe you talked about in your book where the domes, they would have pictures of the angels because the, what they believed that these entities were swirling around in there they believed that they encapsulated this these entities within there these angels did you, you wrote about that in your book right um it, no but it, it's true um the domes were really representation of the heavens that came from the roman mm. where you would look the dome would represent the sort of the society the roman society um, that it covered the world. So you oh. look at Parthenon, and um, that's Roman society uh, presented. So the Christians picked this up. They, in fact, everybody's trading this stuff back and forth. So if you're looking at the Greek philosophy, it's all from the Mediterranean, a lot from Egypt. Egypt sort of develops its own. But the hieroglyphics are, are you know, is this sort of the Mediterranean culture from the um, all over the Mediterranean. Um, and they all just sort of borrowed and modeled from each other. And you know what? I haven't actually ever looked up. What did the houses of the Egyptians look like? Did they live in like huts or something? Or did they build crazy, the homes that they actually lived in? Or were they, did they live uh, in the temples? Typically, actually, if you're going to, um, you're going to Egypt and there is a, the village for all the workers that were working on the pyramids when they would come when the the nile would go up and they couldn't farm so they all had to go someplace and they, they'd work on the pyramids and make money uh and i think that uh pharaoh probably realized this probably his advisors told him that idle hands of the devil's workshop and they you know <laughs> uh, so keep them busy and pay them something so they can eat and tax them so they can pay for it all. And there's a village you can see um, down below, just the um, foundations of the, the whole village of all the workers. And there's sort of one room buildings that people lived in. 
Interesting. And yeah, I've um, heard that, that they've come up with the golden ratio because of that, because the the Nile would flood and then when they when it would recede, people didn't know where their land started and ended. So they came up with this ratio so it could be like, Hey, this is your grid and this is a your grid and et cetera, et cetera. Oh. So that's a story that I heard one time. Architects oh. always and part of architecture is it's really trying to control and understand nature. So they would look around at nature and look at the proportion of things and, and found the golden section was everywhere. If you look at Corinthian columns, they have the spiral at the top. Those are from how acacia uh, leaves grew and they uh, represented the golden section. The proportions of temples are always um, mm -hmm. in the golden section. Um, Beautiful. Fascinating. Can, can I ask you a question? I have to leave in 15 minutes to go do a, something, unfortunately. Um, I feel like we could probably talk for hours upon hours. Um, but I, something before we go, <laughs> he's like, eh, maybe. Uh, uh, labyrinths. What is your opinion on the function of labyrinths uh, as opposed to strictly aesthetic um, and the spiritual function and potentially magical function of labyrinths? Well, labyrinths are symbolic of human search for order that, um, you know, people have used it in novels, for example, Name of the Rose, as um, the library was um, drawn up as a labyrinth. Actually, when Umberto Eco was teaching over at the University of Toronto, just a couple blocks from where I'm teaching, uh, he used the model of the robot at the library, how you sort of go in there and learn and understand the world. Cool. I've actually been to the palace at Minos, and uh, it's big. I kind of got lost in it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I tried to find your way. Did you find the well, Minotaur? Uh, no, I found the tour group and <laughs> found my way back. Um, but it's very interesting when you start to think about what it means. Um, the labyrinth is con is containing the Minotaur. The Minotaur is a gift from the gods. It was given uh, through a union of um, the queen who fell in love with this big bull. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, the the architect created this sort of fake bull she could get into and so they could mate and uh, um, she gave birth to the minotaur which was half god half half gift to god half human um, so they wanted to create a place to control it so in other words they're creating order and uh, trying to create A way to control this message of the gods and which is really a form of nature mm, mm. would you say the minotaur is representative of well like a bestial nature of man or something like that trying to trying to handle that i would argue that it's probably uh, a gift of the gods so like a promethean fire in a way really a gift from the gods that's an interesting gift to give somebody uh, a half man, half bull god. <laughs> yeah, I mean, here are these poor guys. All of a sudden, this appears. Nobody understood the what the hell it meant. So let's try and create something that can put some order around it. By the way, you find labyrinths everywhere. In yeah, fact, everywhere. Uh, they're in cathedrals, and they represent the uh, pilgrim's journey. 
there. You find them in many cathedrals. Yeah, I remember Roman telling me about that. Oh yeah, no, they're. I mean, they're 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 absolutely everywhere, and that's why I was wondering, you know, your interpretation of the symbolism is because they are so vast and widespread. Solomon said to be having of the labyrinth as well, and you know his magical workings and those keys of Solomon and such, um, you know, and it usually location wise of a labyrinth from my experience is in a very specific location. Um, and I, I think as you just enter the cathedral. Yeah. And, you know, cathedrals are built on sacred sites, generally, uh, mm. associated with ley lines or electromagnetic hotspots of sorts. Um, and I like to I like to dive into Sufism. Sufism is very fascinating to me. I think they associate some of the the movement amongst the Sufis with the labyrinth walking and like just kind of keeping that motion going, that sort of circular motion that might be iterated in the you know the movement of the building and the body at the same time to kind of keep a flow going and keep a spiritual spiritual funnel open, you know, because humans we are meant to move around in my opinion you know we need to move we need to we need to just like reach and and go and and grab for in order to bring down and harness spiritual energy and bring it into our essence and oh you you, you bring up an absent yeah in fact you you brought up a point that i missed on the labyrinth that paris gomez makes the argument and i think it's correct that uh they also represent dance step And the step of the dance is like a ritual. Uh, there, there used to be almost magical rituals. If you did this dance, something would happen. You did that dance, you know. Maybe it would rain, or maybe you would find your lover, or whatever. Um, <laughs> so, they, if you think about it, uh, it's the he would make the argument that it's a dance step in stone. Oh, beautiful. We got to well, relearn that dance. Like architecture's frozen music, you know, it's the same game. Oh, beautiful. Wow. There we go. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really like fascinating. Rhythm and order and, you know, emotion. Shape shape is rhythm, right? Shape is rhythm. It's it's a like you say like it's like music in in stone. It's yeah, it's like a form of rhythm that shaped to bend a curve. You know, oh, wow. Yeah, it's, I, I, I feel, okay, I want to ask one more about um, the importance of embellishing resonance through basilicas and, you know, the magic of sound being incorporated into architecture, the resonance. Uh, acoustics. And reverberation, the acoustics, acoustio, archaeoacoustics. I mean, these guys are masters of this, but they realize that humans have more senses than just sight. <laughs> so you go into the place, not only it's the it's the sound, but you go into the and there's and you go if when you travel through Europe, you'll remember this, or you go into your first cathedral if you haven't. There's a certain smell of a thousand years of unwashed pilgrims and incense desperately trying to cover it up. It smells a certain way, and it's memorable, one of the most memorable places. Or walking down cobblestone streets, the texture. These are all the ways yeah. the human body remembers. 
Oof. So yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, and and these guys were not. I mean, if you look at the, the architects, they were geniuses because they they bring you in and they pull your eye up into that stained glass window and the light <laughs> to the heavens, and you just go, "Oh my goodness!" How crazy is that? That is some. That is just. It's a. It, it reminds me of um, being heightened. Uh, within the gosh, that is so beautiful. The blue, Impressive, oh, good. Huh? and it, it, it makes you think about greater things. Wow, yes, it does. Yeah, absolutely. It makes me think about time itself. You know, it really does. Like it, it, it almost encapsulates that Saturnian type of like father time, Chronos captured in time. Like it looks like you'd be able to go in here and hit a switch and literally walk out. It's into fucking Hogwarts, time. bro. You're in some yes. magical energy. <laughs> <laughs> um, Albert, it has been a true pleasure. Uh, I have to go run. Um, and Juan, thank you for letting me come on and join this chat, brother. I appreciate you both. Yeah, for sure, bro. By the way, where are you guys located? I'm sorry. I didn't know that. Where you were. I'm in California. And I'm in Florida. <laughs> oh, we're in Florida, my friend. Uh, Central Florida, so Orlando. Oh, okay. Yeah. We don't have a lot of... I lived in the Panhandle at one time. Uh, over by Tallahassee, um, <clears throat> Tallahassee or Pensacola? Fort Walton Beach. Fort Walton. Nice. My father was in the military. Nice. And did, did you have, uh, you said you had some some points as well. I don't know if you wanted to wrap up on those. Uh, we can continue uh, the conversation on the points that you had. Because, again, this book is is uh, one of the, the things that stood out to me here is the idea of architects passing on traditions and passing on information and portfolios compared to grimoires a book of spells uh you get into that as well uh yeah i mean you look at the uh, um these are almost uh, um secret documents uh like the uh, um book of uh Vlar de Hanukkah, uh which were how to build uh um, arches and etc. They'd actually go from town to town with models under their arms of the flying buttresses that they were creating, sort of almost magical things with the technology. Any new technology, as, as you probably know, is many times considered almost magical by the population. Yeah, proportions, and that's why the whole Pythagorean palace thing really piqued my interest, because the Pythagoreans, they literally worshipped the number they didn't just see it as a quantitative thing it was a qualitative where each number had it was its own archetype essentially and yeah um and that's not only with the renaissance but um that happened all over the uh, i've just written with a friend an article she wrote an article um appeared in a chinese journal on um magic numbers measuring to uh, create a town the Luban um, towns of China. And, Magic uh, number we, to create a town? Yeah, they, they, they had uh, um, rulers, and each number had a magical meaning. And so if you use this number and that number to create, um, you know, beams, et cetera, um, it had certain meanings and create certain events. They believed. 
Interesting. So again, back to try selling a house with a lot of fours in the number two. <laughs> is that is that bad? I haven't I haven't never tried. <laughs> it is eights are lucky. <laughs> so even in the address itself, people take that yeah. into really. And they still do it. I mean, come on, don't you get a little uh, nervous by buying a house number thirteen? Or living on the thirteenth floor, or six six six, or people. I had a credit card with six six six. Yeah, yeah. Going to hell. That that would make sense for as non superstitious as we want to be. Sometimes we are pretty superstitious when it comes to things like that. Where you're saying the number seven or number eight or number four. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Where again, I'm not a numbers. Yeah, that was a big issue. Exactly as you're talking about it, geometry was considered almost magical. And it wasn't just in the Renaissance, though they brought it back. The Renaissance at that point, then the uh, uh, architects had to make the decisions. Before, you know, the church uh, would sort of tell the architects, you'll do it this way, you'll do it that way, because, you know, this is the way cathedrals are built. So uh, um, the Renaissance comes along and the architects are given a little bit more freedom and you start to see some really amazing geometrical studies. Where was, do you know where the church was getting their stuff from? Did they have their own architects that were, that were, I forgot the name of the one that had the, the religion really embedded into his work. I have to find. Alberti, Alberti was a priest, for example. Was it? Uh, architect. I don't think it was Alberti. I, I, I took note of it somewhere. It was the one where, here, I'll find it. But were they, did they, so they would just hijack the, the design and make it all religious instead of, of having. Yeah, well, it's, and think about a cathedral. It, it's pretty much three, you know, based on threes for the Holy Trinity and disproportion representing that. And they kind of go, uh, yeah, you know, why are you trying to do this differently? Mm-hmm. Then they burn them at the stake. <laughs> I think it might have been got it was it Gaudi? I'm trying to find here. Oh, Gaudi's a very interesting guy. Antonio Gaudi, uh Spanish architect who died of, at the beginning of the last century. Do you realize he's up for sainthood? Really? This this architect yeah, so it is Gaudi the Yeah. Francis is big on uh pushing him and he's uh because and they, he's he's gone through the process fairly well because they thought that the building had actually created miracles by converting people, <laughs> and, and stories are true, of course. Seriously. You know, uh, I suspect you're Catholic like I am. So the church goes through a very rigorous process, you know, for sainthood, and he's going through and moving through fairly rapidly through the process. Interesting. I think did we lose you, Doctor Smith? Yeah. He froze up there for a second. You said, and he's moving up quit fairly quickly through the ranks. In the process of, towards sainthood. Really, that that's really interesting because it goes back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the book, where these architects they achieve uh, positions of power within the they would become pharaohs because they were seen as they're talking about what role. So they're talking about this building helping manifest miracles. And which building in particular is it? Sagrada Familia. 
Sagrada Familia is the cathedral in the middle of Barcelona. Actually, it's almost the symbol of the city. How do you spell it? Can you say it a little bit slower? So yeah, can... uh, S-A-G, Sagrada. Familia? Uh, Sagrada Familia. Here we go. Oh, wow, that is crazy looking. It looks like well, something. Well, it from... isn't. It isn't. But you know, it's if you start to analyze it, it's quite a conservative building. This guy was highly religious, um, so he's really taking his dogma from the Catholic Church and using uh, natural forms. So he uses seashells um, and the way they twist up. He uses he builds this whole thing through models. I've studied this thing and gone there, and uh, um, studied the models to create natural forms. Uh, much of this is from nature. This is really he beautiful. He use uh, drawings. He built architectural models to design it. And so uh, they never quite finished it after he got hit by a streetcar out front and died. Uh, so they hadn't finished it. And the Spanish Civil War came along and they took all the little models out and tossed them in the uh, trench around the building and they used it for stables i think it was but they wanted to go back and build the church and they didn't know how to do it they had to go dig up the <laughs> trench around the church to find the old models and they're, they're desperately sitting there gluing them together when i was there really what he was intending to do this is amazing do you know how long it took him to build this um, this actually started in the 1890, late 1800s, and uh, they haven't finished. So They're still finishing it now. Wow. Yeah, so I, he was very, because he talks about the tetrahedron and how it represents the Trinity and the lines and the Holy Ghost and all that's how you're saying, the, the, the three. It's very similar to, you know, straightforward cathedral. Um, he's following dogma. He's just, you know, taking it a little farther, almost like the late Renaissance. It is 560 feet tall. It's a big building. Thousands of people can go in there. It's the main basilica for the uh, uh, city itself. Wow, it's really beautiful. So but you've been there? there? Oh, yeah. I've studied there. I've been down to the museum. I talked to all this uh, historians. I was there for the International Year of Gaudi. So we see here the design. It goes back to that cross, the 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 per, the Vitruvian yeah, man. Church design. Very but, very cool. But you know, Barcelona is on the ocean, so he's using seashells. He's mm -hmm. using nautical, but it also has a huge uh, um, Moorish aspect, and so he. Uh, um, takes pieces from the Moorish design. Mm -hmm. My question to you was, so we have this idea that this building helps make miracles, right? And, and have miracles happen. Where does, where do ley lines and longitude and latitude play a role when, a, when an architect is going to build something of this significance? I mean, something this massive, something that's going to be used by the church. Did they have a way of calculating that at all? Um, he's just a really great architect, so it becomes very sophisticated. He's looking at some very sophisticated work to be able to do that. Can you imagine the mines that went in here? Well, the reason he was able to do it is he was educated as an engineer. 
he knew mechanics. And um, so when he was making his machine, he, he knew how it could go together. And he would study it and uh, develop it through architectural models. And can we talk a little bit about the exact role that models play? Because when, when, when we first spoke on the phone the first time, you were talking you were going on about the models and how important they were uh, in the process of architecture representation and probably the most direct because it's the easiest for uh, um, both architects and uh, the clients to understand because it's the most one-to-one the word model comes from modus uh, from the latin modus which literally means to measure and what they were doing is trying to measure you know the world uh, and create a, a, a space that explain and can help to control nature in the ways that we talked about earlier about you know keeping the ghosts away and the rain off your head so he would study these uh, he would look at uh, he'd put hanging chains down to take a look at the uh, geometric form of parabola and hyperbolic curves uh, very sophisticated stuff because he understood the models and then um, start to use those within his designs build them out of plaster and um, test it. In fact, he lived down in the basement of uh, Sagrada Familia's going up like a monk. He gave up everything and just built the cathedral uh, because he's a very spiritual guy. That helps when you're trying to be a saint. Uh, They don't find all this bad stuff about you. So um, he lived in the basement and he surrounds himself with his architectural models instead of religious icons because he, I think, really realized they were the same. They're representing and trying to explain God's work. So he was he was surrounding himself with his models that were uh, uh, these, these are the ones that are huge, right? The huge models where it's almost lifelike. And well, they were. I mean, he built those, but he also built hundreds of little small ones i mean a building like this you do a lot i can't even begin to comprehend how you would start (laughs) start something like this because i mean just just looking at it is intimidating so the truth is you start with a big idea what's my concept and his was like uh, glorifying god and he's glorifying god through geometry and proportion and his uh, um, um nature and he's using all that in the building. I have here Gaudi with his theurgical approach used geometry to create a clear framework on which to base his understanding of immeasurable things. So are you saying to encapsulate God and to uh, reflect a more divine world? But this idea that he would sit around with his models and you said that they would replace the the saints the you know the, the little figurines of the saints so he would have instead of that he would have building models around him well he did have the little building models around there I, i'm this is my interpretation okay i thought i thought it was uh i thought it was an actual thing but that, the, the idea is, is well he was down there like that it's really beautiful if you really think yeah. about it where it's like exactly. <laughs> these are my friends <laughs> and this is a representation of god these models so therefore I have, uh, I guess, deity around at the same time as, as you know, being while being at a church. That's 
Well, you find this in a mosque where it's geometry for, for presenting uh, mm -hmm. the idea of God. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Christians did it too, but they also used the icons. Yes. And that's a way to try and measure the unmeasurable through the human body. You talk about the disconnection, the 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 loss of enchantment when it comes to building. And we talked a little bit about it at the beginning. Uh, and then you talk about re-enchantment. Do you... Let me talk about that. Can you... I'd like to read something here really yeah, quickly. Yeah, go ahead. We can talk about it. Architecture emerges from and is inherently integrated in society's belief and search for understanding. We've talked about that. And in this search, principles related to magic have played a significant role. Magic from early history has been essential in the process of architecture as most technology. If magic is an attempt to control nature and engage the divine, then the objects such as the architecture itself that has been, uh, has been acted upon is enchanted. So the concept of enchantment is the state of being under a spell magic with a great delight or charm and can clarify how architects can be a form of magician. I uh, would like to propose that many of the architects have been, uh, have lasting uh, reputations, have continued uh, engaging concepts related to magic in their designs. Consequently, if the uh, Principles of reenchantment uh, remain relevant to architecture, and I think it does. And that's why I'm excited by this podcast and what you're doing, which is, I think, uh, um, hitting a, a pretty important trend early. Uh, then it is critical to remind contemporary architects how they may use concepts of magic in order to uh, enchant their buildings. The exclusion of magical practices, a type of disenchantment, getting rid of it, was uh, conceived by the rational uh, movement of the scientific or industrial revolution, which you probably know about that has fallen a little bit into ear uh, repute. Um, it was a prevalent belief, and most philosophers of the 19th century pretty well adhere to this theory. However, even if one accepts this school of thought, it remains important to remember that magic, to various degrees, um, historically has been important to our understanding of the world. And to re rectify a, a seemingly disenchanted world, the philosopher John uh, um, Joseph Lundy, these guys are really interesting. And Michael Saylor, in his book, The Reenchantment of the World, uh, proposes notions that may reenchant a contemporary society. So I think these guys are doing some pretty interesting work. They give out 10 concepts that appear to derive from uh, historical sources reflecting uh, literature related to magic. So Lundy and Saylor describes how contemporary society can pro uh, promote re-enchantment. And Wright said, if the world is to be enchanted, it must have mystery, wonder, order, purpose, 
significance attached to objects and events encountered. It must be uh, susceptible to redemption, have intellectual locus for the infinite. And in re-enchantment, there must be a way of carving out within the profane world a set of spaces that uh, possesses the allure of the sacred, display miracles that can be viewed as exceptional events that go against the accepted order of things, or exhibit secular epiphanies, uh, which uh, create unity with something larger than themselves. I believe these qualities of re-enchantment can be used to clarify the significant relationships between magic and contemporary architecture. Now, that is not to say that uh, a lot, many of the great architects of the past haven't realized that and have done this. They do, and you can start to analyze their work and see it all over the place. But um, I think uh, um, too many have um, sort of cut it out of their building. This is just a building to make money, et cetera. And they, you get soulless places. There is a famous um, um, housing development that was put up outside St. Louis called Pruitt Igo. It was built on just pure scientific principles and it was, uh, and it went up and they really didn't realize that they needed these sort of issues to give it a soul. And uh, the population revolted. It kind of burned the place down. And finally, they just had to tear the whole place down because it was became a soulless, crime ridden trash heap. And it sort of sits as a, uh, uh, some people use it as sort of the end of the modern movement where they really cut out all the sort of the spiritual. Now I think there's a strong movement to phenomenology, et cetera, going back to the spiritual to try and reinvest architecture with some, many of these issues. So those are some of the issues I think that uh, I think are important to sort of put into it. And that's why when I look at Gaudi's work or I look at, uh, uh, you know, even going back to Corbu, et cetera, these are um, the things that make it great architecture because they deal with the entire human spirit, how we inhabit the world and understand it, define it. Make architecture great again. <laughs> Where <laughs> this, the, but here's the no, thing. It wasn't bad. I mean, you know, all the great modernists kind of understood this. Uh, you know, guys like, you ever see Catlin's Tower? No, I'll pull it up now though. Catlin's Tower? Catlin, T A T L I N. Oh, yeah, it's in your book. I saw this in your book. Let me pull it up here on the screen. It was in the section with Gaudi, I, I believe. So here it yeah, is. Yeah, there's Catlin down at the bottom. Um, he creates this huge model, and this is to be the uh, headquarters for the Third International, the Communist Party that's in <laughs> Russia as it developed in 1919. So he builds this huge model. It's supposed to be 1,500 feet tall when they build the thing, and it had these rooms in the side that were turning around. But this thing is so loaded with alchemy and mythology and uh, magic 
Why? Because they couldn't use imagery from the church anymore. Um, so he knew the Russians are pretty spiritual people. And, um, you know, if you took it all out, you got a problem. And so when you start to analyze this thing, you know, you, you start to find all those wonderful issues of, from alchemy. And um, you can go back to this um, squaring of the circle of the uh, alchemists. Uh, there's a there's a beautiful etching of the squaring of the circle. That's what Pythagoras means, the one who squares the circle. Yeah, pull up, uh, let's see, if, I don't know if I have that here, but... Uh, but you, his buddy, he was had a buddy named uh, an artist called L. Lizisky, and uh, he copies the uh, alchemist squaring the circle. And he has Catlin uh, uh, designing the tower, and it's full of, you know, alchemical mythological symbolism. So he copied this design. Do you have the name of that building, the model? Uh, this building. The one, the the one that got copied, his friend. Oh, um, go to uh, Alchemist Squaring the Circle. Alchemist Squaring of the Circle. It should come up. Okay, see the guy, the kind of yellow one on the top row? Him, right? Yeah, this one? Yeah. If you look down at the building, it's uh, the plan is basically that. Really? Yeah. What the heck? Yeah, it's amazing. Now go El Lizisky. How do you spell? E L, e -L and then Lizisky, the next word. This is a famous artist from the period. L I Z Z. Yeah. And go Tatlin. So the same thing? Yeah, Tatlin. Now, Tatlin was his buddy. And you see the, this first row of uh, images, those are collages he made. Mm -hmm. Well, you put that image of the squaring of the circle, and oh. uh, the images, he's just copying that. But instead of down at the bottom of the alchemist, which he has at its feet, the cross, uh, Muziski has the geometry and the mathematical formulas. And, uh, um, you know, he's got the uh, lever. He's trying to lever the world into uh, Marxism. The thing points at the North Star, you know, sort of a, a communist party. Wow. He used to have a kid uh, sit inside and turn the crank so this whole thing would turn around and take it out uh, to parades to explain. And the whole building becomes sort of a, a demonstration of where the Marxist party was going. <laughs> People would, uh, all the walls were projectors. And it's, it's just an extraordinary building. You can analyze it on and on and on. And it's got a resemblance to the Tower of Babel, too, if you look at it. All these depictions of the Tower of Babel. Well, what it is, is the caduceus, the uh, double helix spiral of the, you know, the snakes of Hermes. You, you should, you need to know about Hermes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of course. Yes, yes. The... Go to, go to, put up Hermes. I love the Tower of Babel. That's a... Hermes, the messenger god. Yeah. Caduceus. See the Caduceus? There mm -hmm. he is. He's bringing the uh, message from the gods. Mm -hmm. From the gods. I mean, to the communists? My God, they must have hated that. But, <laughs> you know, they got it. Um, and it would make sense because he's the one that can transcend 
the different layers of reality without being, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's a guy that, that could go from uh, the heavens to the earth, bring mm -hmm. messages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think we're on the right path when it comes to, because we have teachers like you that are writing about these sort of things and you're talking to your students about it and you're, you're re-enchanting uh, I guess the minds of these young architects right now that are going to be the future. And that's kind of what Romy was talking about at the beginning, where we want to be at the forefront of this alchemical revival of whatever reality is and trying to study that and, and come up with our own interpretations of things. But I think it's great that you're talking about this sort of thing. You're writing about it from a scholarly point of view and it's being taken seriously. It's being taken as Again, academically, not just me, a random guy with a podcast trying to talk about it. <laughs> this is why I have people like you who are experts in the field to talk about things like this, because you have experience, you have actual experience and you know the history. Do you feel that there is a revamping up of this re-enchantment as we move on? Because from what I'm seeing oh, here. Yeah, I think people are really interested in it. You know, it, it, the problem is if you cut out all the enchantment architecture has a tendency to start to become political and just sort of meaningless it becomes about money well that that's what here in florida they're building hundreds and hundreds of houses and buildings and how you said they're just empty shells that they that they don't they don't they're just cookie cutter communities that's what it is and i live in a cookie cutter house but i mean that's all it's meaningless yeah exactly and you were talking about how science, so this the after the Renaissance and the scientific revolution and, and, and the step away from alchemy into chemistry and uh, leaving, you, you had that dogma of back then if it was mathematical in nature or scientific in nature, it was black magic automatically because only the, the higher ups could have this sort of knowledge or whatever it was. But it comes back to the AI argument where people say, you know, when you approach the singularity that technology is going to take over everything and the idea of making everything more cost effective and more technologically advanced. And you gave the 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 example of this place that was just done according to science and it went to shit and everybody burned everything down. That's the role of science, you know, pure science, zero soul into uh, architecture into material into the material without that again back to the soul there's no soul into it it's just reproduction money 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 at the end of the day and and uh, the, what's the best cost effective alternative and they're just putting up shoe boxes and 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 <laughs> what looks like like houses made out of toothpicks that have nothing in them to to show you know what I mean? It's just an empty hollow shell, how you're saying. And it goes back to science taking over and just making everything soulless in a way. If you look at the word uh, architect, it means prime technologist. We have that prime responsibility to all of these things. Our architects have traditionally gotten involved in, you know, just about the design of everything from furniture to, you know, I've, I've known architects do cruise ships, etc. Renzo Piano did one a few years ago. 
So, and they're quite, can be quite interesting. So um, this certainly is a part of their responsibility. And as we approach the end here, Dr. Smith, did you want to add any final thoughts, any final ideas? Did you have any other ideas that you wanted to bring up? Any more talking points that you wanted to touch on before we head on out no, of here? No, I think I've said what I want to, but if you've got any more questions. I think, where do you see the future of architecture as far as, uh, I'm really interested in the re-enchantment of things. Do you think it's going to go there? Do you think it's going to... I think it's going to go there. I, I, you could see it everywhere. There are people writing about the spiritual. There are people t talking about phenomenological issues, you know, which are, you know, greater things. They, they all understand that this is a bit of a problem. And if they don't start to engage it, representation's been there for a while. But I, I certainly think there's going to be quite a bit more of that as it comes along, as we sort of tie in uh, to. You know, I think there's going to be more of a tying into the university as a whole uh, for architecture. It's not going to be so isolated in a little silo, but it's it will be more about you know the sort of a broader sense of how humans should inhabit the world. Very nice, and Dr. Smith, I want to thank you for coming on today and talking to myself and to Romy who had to go. I really enjoyed our conversation and I enjoyed the book for those that want to, you can find it online, the architect as magician by Dr. Albert C. Smith. And I will post a link to where you can find the book in the description of the episode. And thank you again, Dr. Smith for coming on you here. You can get and, it on Amazon. Oh, you can find it on Amazon. I didn't know. Oh yeah. Awesome. You can find it on Amazon and I'll post the links to that. Did you want to plug anything else? Dr. Smith, do you have any, Social media. Well, if you're interested in models, my book, Architectural Models Machine, is uh, um, also on there. I have a bunch of books on uh, design process, if you're interested in that sort of thing. Or yeah. The character of the architect, how architects think, which I think. I'm going to be reading the, the, the model as machine one. I have to pick up a copy of that because I wasn't able to read it in time. But I'll have you back on once I read that as well. And again, thank you, Dr. Smith, for coming on. Had a lot of fun. Hopefully you enjoyed your first podcast ever. Uh, I think this was well, a really... Thanks for making it easy. You made the conversation go along. You didn't just stare at me and say, speak. <laughs> I'm trying to keep up with you in the conversation because I'm not an architect, so I'm trying to pull my notes together and come up with it. Went... I didn't tell you my parents met in Puerto Rico. Oh, really? What part? Do you San know? Juan. Oh, San Juan. San Juan. Yeah. <laughs> I think you told me the first time we talked on the phone, actually. There, my father was in the army. My grandfather was in the uh, army down in the station out of Puerto Rico. Awesome. Shout out to Puerto Rico. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you so much. And thank you to all those who listened. And we'll catch you on the other side.
At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.